0: In the realm where battles roar, Tenets guide conflicts to explore, Rights defended, wrongs abhor, Criteria set, temperamenta restore, What theory shapes conflict to be more? Yes, that was this week's riddle, posted on e-International Relations social media pages on the 14th of August if you want to hear the answer to that particular puzzle, you better stay tuned because it's going to be revealed at the end of this episode, alongside our shout out for the first person who got it correct. So keep on listening! <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Global Podcast by E! International Relations. My name is Kieran O'Meara, and today I'm going to be your host. Before we go anywhere, make sure you click on that little follow or subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this from. That way you'll be able to get all the content that Thinking Global has to offer the moment that it's uploaded. And that works for both fruit-related software and non-fruit-related software. Whether you're listening on Apple, or you're listening on Spotify or Amazon, whatever it is, just click on that little follow or subscribe button. It would mean the world to us. Today, I have a treat in store for you. I'm in conversation with Dr. Alexander Lenoska. Alexander Lenoska is an assistant professor of international relations at the University of Waterloo. He studies alliance politics, theories of war, and European security. He's also recently published his second book, Military Alliances in the 21st Century, by Polity Press. There will be a link in the description box to his book. I recommend you read it, it's absolutely fantastic. And this offers a basic, holistic overview of how alliances operate from their conception to their eventual demise. He's also written policy monographs on Baltic regional security and Taiwan's defense posture, as well as co-edited a volume on NATO's enhanced forward presence. We're gonna be talking about all these themes today. As I say, don't forget to like, share, subscribe, and follow, and remember that Thinking Global is part of e-International Relations, the world's leading open access website for students and scholars of international relations. So go and check out the website at e-ir.info if you haven't been there before. Okay, let's get cracking. Alexander Lenoska, thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast. It's great to have you with us. Thank you very much for having me. To begin, I'd like to talk about your work on military alliances and your book on military alliances in the 21st century. How should we conceptualize the very notion of military alliances?
1: That's a very important question that's helpful for establishing the baseline and for understanding exactly what we mean here. So in my own work, particularly in my book, Military Alliances in the 21st Century, I define military alliances as those written down arrangements that comprise two or more sovereign states and are intended primarily to help those states coordinate their defense and foreign policies, typically around a shared security concern or threat. So examples obviously will include the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO for short, but as well as the Collective Security Treaty Organization that Russia leads in uh, much of Eurasia, as well as the US-South Korea um, alliance, the US-Japan alliance, and so forth. Now, I should note that my own definition of alliances It's not necessarily universally shared. It stands apart from how other scholars in the field of international relations have defined alliances. I have many colleagues who would disagree with me over my insistence that there ought to be a commitment written down by way of a treaty for that relationship to qualify as an alliance. However, I do think that this particular element is important. Absent any treaty commitment, it's really hard to tell uh, what a political alignment must be for it to qualify as an alignment, as an alliance. And I don't think this controversy is simply an academic one. For instance, China and Russia do not have any such treaty commitment to one another, yet that still does not stop some observers from calling their partnership as an alliance. Now, those countries do describe their partnership as at least rhetorically one without limits. But for my purposes, that is not an alliance. And the fact that they have refrained from making a treaty commitment to one another actually says something about their partnership and how that partnership of theirs actually does have significant limits, even when they appear to be cooperating on a range of issues.
0: Hmm, okay. On a follow-up question to that, One of the particular things I find salient in your book on military alliances is that part of your conceptualization of military alliances is an ontology by written agreement to commonality. So would you say for you that written agreement is absolutely essential to conceptualizing or indeed understanding something as a military alliance? I think so. A written agreement
1: is one that is generally public. And so it is known to the citizens of the signatory countries, but also to the adversaries as such, the written treaty has signaling value to both those domestic and foreign audiences that would in turn strengthen the security commitment in part because it entails or puts at stake the reputation of the signatories involved indeed having a treaty shepherded through domestic legislative bodies is hard work. And so if a country decides to do so with a particular commitment, it demonstrates its seriousness, it's putting its money where its mouth is. And so when countries shy away from these sorts of written commitments, they demonstrate that, in fact, there's actually a lot of daylight between themselves as regards to security issues that plausibly would have some uh, shared concern between them. And so, again, to invoke the case of China-Russia now, these are not democracies by any means. They could easily shepherd a treaty uh, through their own domestic bodies if they wish to do so. But the very fact that they have refrained from doing so, again, tells you that they are not sufficiently confident in that relationship so as to have the alliance that there is significant disagreement on some profound strategic issues so as to make the alliance undesirable they did have an alliance to be sure at least beijing and moscow had an alliance over the course of the cold war expired in the 1970s but nevertheless they did have an alliance so there is that history there but the fact that is that they have so far refrained from rekindling that that alliance precisely because they're sufficiently far apart from Each other that they cannot really go about it. They are fearful that if, for instance, they do have a treaty commitment, then that treaty commitment will be very much activated, not least for China, because Russia is engaged in a hot war with Ukraine at the moment. But even Russia might have its own concerns considering China's uh, increasing assertiveness in the South and East China Seas. So both countries have good reason to be suspicious of one another. They don't want to necessarily have a written agreement. Of course, the reason why countries have written agreements in the first place, paradoxically, is because they disagree with one another. This is something I tease out in my book. But even so, the countries that do end up having a written down treaty lines tend to agree with each other more than they disagree but i think in the case of china and russia paradoxically they disagree more than they actually agree and that's why we don't have a treaty commitment you want to have a treaty commitment because that will allow you to outline the conditions under which the commitment would be activated it has that signaling value that i mentioned earlier it does things that informal alignment does not necessarily convey uh, and so You need to have both agreement and disagreement, uh, paradoxically, to have the treaty commitment in the first place. But again, as the example of China and Russia do bear out, there is just way too much disagreement between those two countries. And that's why we don't see a written down treaty
0: commitment. Okay, so why are multilateral security alliances significant to the international politics of the 21st century?
1: Funny enough, there are really only a handful of multilateral alliances in the world right now. In fact, alliances in general, at least in the way that I describe them and define them, are rare creatures. NATO is obviously the most prominent multilateral alliance given its institutional depth, aggregate military capabilities, and geographical breadth. But there's also the US-led Rio Pact or the Inter-American Treaty of Reciprocal Assistance. However, that military alliance lacks the deep institutional cooperation and investment that characterizes NATO. There's also the Russian-led collective security treaty organization that I mentioned earlier. It encompasses, of course, Russia, but also Armenia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan. So NATO is obviously the most significant of these three. And I think its significance is largely self-evident, in part because we see its presence in news headlines consistently these days. It provides for a number of its members uh, the best insurance policy against Russian military aggression, at least that is the perception by those countries located on the so-called eastern flank. That Ukraine continues to seek NATO membership is indeed indicative of how much magnetic appeal the alliance has and indeed, can also throw in here how Sweden and Finland sought to join membership, uh, or sought to join the alliance uh, following Russia's brutal full-scale invasion of Ukraine. That NATO is in fact starting to cultivate certain linkages with various East Asian countries also shows that it has those institutional assets helpful to US allies in the Euro-Atlantic and in the, in the Indo-Pacific regions to consult one another on issues of common concern. But again, multilateral security alliances are really difficult to manage. And that explains in part their rarity in international politics. They're difficult to manage precisely because their membership profiles are often highly diverse. There's going to be wide variation in states interests, priorities and capabilities, and that variation is going to widen somewhat uh, given a larger membership. Of course, alliance management difficulties do not grow linearly. It's not like if you have more alliance members, you're gonna have more problems. You can consider again the example of the collective security treaty organization that Russia leads It has only six members. Barring Armenia, they're mostly autocratic and to a degree still attached to their Soviet past. Yet despite those commonalities, this alliance seems to be experiencing deep dysfunction, especially in the wake of Russia's decision to launch a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. You don't really hear about how Russian allies in Central Asia are providing it with military assistance to cope with its own difficulties in Ukraine. And indeed, some of those allies have distanced themselves from various aspects of Russian policy. So again, not. There's not necessarily a linear relationship between numbers and problems within an alliance. But again, precisely because multilateral security alliances do tend to encompass a wider set of interests, priorities, and capabilities, they are probably more liable to experience dysfunction. And I think the CSTO is a good piece of evidence to that effect. Mm-hmm.
0: And don't forget to keep on listening to hear the answer to the riddle that we gave you at the beginning of this episode. In the realm where battles roar, tenets guide conflicts to explore. Rights defended, wrongs abhor. Criteria set, temperamenta restore. What theory shapes conflict to be more? (laughs) Okay, keep listening, and at the end of this episode, we will present you with the answer to this riddle, alongside a shout-out for the first person who did, in fact, get it correct on social media. Before that, however, I'd just like to take some time to go through your letters. Last week, we asked you to email us in with your letters, or send us some comments on social media about what you thought about the podcast or articles you've read that you've enjoyed, and I'm delighted to bring you some of our listeners' letters. First up, we have Dominique C.M., who commented on the episode about Women's International Thought. Amazing overview. I will include section 6 and 10 into my dissertation about representation in diplomacy. Oh, fantastic. I will pass that one on to the guests that were on that particular episode, and we can't wait to read your dissertation. <laughs> Shahan from Yogyakarta in Indonesia said, hi, for IR students, you need maybe a guide to publications, ranking IR journals by quality of paper and output. It would be a great help to us. We'll see what we can do. Maybe we can get a guest on to talk to us about publishing in journals. Thank you very much, Shahanwaz. We have Yamin Hsu from Myanmar, who likes our articles on gender equality and is writing on the Asia-Indo-Pacific tilt and says that she frequently uses our articles for her research. Oh, fantastic. Thank you ever so much. And we have Manisha Sewa from Nepal, who's a student majoring in International Development, but wants to do a PhD in International Relations. They say they really enjoy our articles on global power and find them very insightful. Thank you ever so much, Manisha. And remember that your letters can too be read out on the podcast. We want to hear all your thoughts about international relations and the podcast broadly. All you have to do is comment on one of the posts on social media where we ask for your thoughts or send us a letter to thinkingglobal.eir at gmail.com. We can't wait to hear from you. Thank you. So before we go into greater depth about your work concerning NATO, in what manner do nuclear weapons and nuclear proliferation complicate or adapt the dynamics of contemporary alliances? Well, nuclear weapons
1: are a hugely complicating factor. And one reason why they're so complicating is that at least in the social sciences, we are still grappling with basic questions regarding how nuclear weapons impact politics more generally. So even without venturing into alliance politics, which is already a very complicated issue on its own right, we are still trying to determine whether nuclear weapons prevent major power wars create incentives for cooperation in international politics. And this is a very lively debate that we have seen the last 10 years, as a number of scholars have criticized uh, theories like the theory of the nuclear revolution, holding that um, nuclear weapons ought to eliminate traditional great power politics. And you can argue that we still see traditional great power politics, especially as regards to the management of alliances, classic issues of alliance management still rear their head, like, for instance, fears of abandonment, the notion that a a security guarantor like the United States might not necessarily come to the aid of an ally seeking its protection. And to some extent, what we do know about nuclear weapons or extended nuclear deterrence, the promise that a security guarantor gives to a protege that it will use nuclear weapons on the latter's behalf, is that countries that tend to believe in their received security guarantees tend not to make significant moves towards acquiring nuclear weapons. They might have some nagging doubts about whether their guarantor will really truly show up uh, to fight on their behalf if the situation requires it to do so, at least in terms of the Alliance Treaty. But unfortunately, a lot of our evidence to this effect is drawn from the Cold War, when norms about nuclear weapons were only starting to develop uh, to what they are now. And so we do have some evidence to this effect about how robust extended nuclear deterrence might deter nuclear proliferation on the part of allies. But with respect to those countries that have taken steps to acquire nuclear weapons, and there's evidence that they have done so, or at least a number of allies have done so when they perceive that their received security guarantees have crumbled in quality, there is evidence that it becomes very hard to restrain those allies. They're hard to restrain because countries that venture on this path towards nuclearization are highly resolved and accept that their costs um, to uh, these sorts of activities. And as such, there's a premium on having sufficiently strong alliances that would deter potential proliferation uh, from various members of the Alliance. So that is one way in which nuclear weapons might complicate or adapt the dynamics of contemporary alliances. In the book, I also mentioned how nuclear weapons have these cross-cutting incentives on um, on countries' military expenditures. If you truly believe in nuclear deterrence being operative vis-a-vis an adversary like the Soviet Union during the Cold War or the Russian Federation nowadays, then you might not necessarily think too highly of the need to acquire large numbers of conventional military forces. And as such, that's going to have a dampening effect on your willingness to spend. Some might even argue if you spend a lot on conventional military forces as what NATO is getting its allies to do, then you might actually undercut nuclear deterrence because you might show a higher willingness to engage in great power conflict, even war. And so uh, that might in fact undermine collective uh, defense and security. So that has some perverse consequences for the defense budgets that countries might have. That's not to say that there's no good reason to spend on conventional military forces um, irrespective of beliefs about the nuclear balance, but it also presents yet another vector um, by which nuclear weapons could complicate uh, alliance
0: management more generally. You wrote an article, which was published in 2020, called Thank Goodness for NATO Enlargement. So, (laughs) why should we say thank goodness for NATO enlargement? Yes, uh, thank
1: you for the question. Indeed, for those listeners who are in the dark, I wrote an article and a follow-up book chapter for a collection of essays edited by James Goldgeyer and Joshua Shifnitson, on the causes and effects. The collections that they have now um, edited are really good for anyone interested on these issues about NATO, NATO enlargement and or alliance politics more generally precisely because they incorporate a wide set of views, many of which are incompatible as a matter of fact, uh, on the legacies of NATO enlargement. So I I think um, listeners should look out for it. My own contribution to those collections is a piece of work titled, uh, Thank Goodness for Native Enlargement, which is an unbiased way, dare I say, of conveying the basic argument. So the way I proceed in that particular um, piece is to back up a little bit and stay away from more present debates that scholars have. So most international relations scholars tend to take the view that NATO enlargement has been beneficial to international security. Yet there does exist a small, but very vocal minority of scholars, including some very prominent names who have taken the very opposite view that NATO enlargement has been uh, harmful to international security. And scholars uh, who are the most prominently associated with this school of thought are those like John Mearsheimer, Stephen Walt, and Barry Posen? I don't think this agreement or disagreement, pardon me, will ever be bridged. I think people will just have to agree to disagree. What I try to do in my essay is to in fact, go back to arguments made in the 1990s about how the post-Cold War security situation in Europe will develop. And also how NATO enlargement would be detrimental to the European security situation more generally. And so thankfully for me, those scholars critical of NATO enlargement today were in fact very pessimistic about Europe's own chances in the early 1990s. And so they in fact wrote a number of articles that flesh out why they think Europe was headed uh, to a period, heading into a period of much instability and warfare. And some of these scholars envisioned the continent as being racked by significant ethnic conflict, not just within the former Soviet Union and the former Yugoslavia. Those were already zones of ethnic conflict to varying degrees. They also thought that relations between Hungary and Romania, for example, would be one flashpoint, Lithuania and Poland perhaps being another, that there will be a massive security vacuum in Europe, and Russia would in fact be revanchist. Funny enough, the only prediction that turns out to be true from this body of work is that Russia did turn out to be revanchist. And so I'd argue that thankfully, NATO enlargement took place, notwithstanding the criticisms that those pessimists had argued later in the 1990s, because that enlargement was useful, arguably, to contain. Russian revanchism, albeit at the expense of what Ukraine has to endure to this day. So what I do in the paper is to argue that NATO, if nothing else, has provided a useful hedge against the worst fears of those scholars who are now critical of NATO enlargement. In fact, things are bad in Europe, and I definitely do not want to make light of Europe's security situation. But again, if we measure the situation now relative to what was expected of Europe in the early to mid-1990s, not without justification, I think Europe has actually done very well for itself. And that some other concerns associated with NATO enlargement, that NATO enlargement would spur the autocratization of Russia or would destroy cooperation with the West, uh, are arguments that don't really hold much water, that Russia autocrats for reasons that are largely domestic, that Despite NATO enlargement, NATO countries and Russia were able to cooperate rather meaningfully, and we see that especially with respect to how European countries increased their dependency on Russian energy, that they doubled down on doing so after 2014, even um, despite the annexation of Crimea. That Russia may not necessarily have been involved in NATO, but it did take part in military exercises with NATO that. Russia took part in a number of international events. In fact, it hosted key events like Formula One races, the Olympic games, uh, and that Russia did receive uh, large numbers of aid uh, from uh, Western sources throughout the 1990s. Uh, Things that uh, those who argue uh, against NATO enlargement tended to overlook, if not ignore altogether
0: thank you for answering that. And it really is a fantastic article. So if you haven't had a read, go check it out. Staying with the theme on NATO, with Sweden and Finland joining NATO, how has the contemporary alliance system, if we can use such a term, adapted as a result of the Russo-Ukrainian war?
1: Well, the most immediate effect of the war uh, was indeed the accession of Finland and the eventual accession of sweden into nato i say eventual because as of recording it's still pending unfortunately their inclusion in nato is of benefit it will help render defense cooperation in the baltic sea more efficient and more effective prior to 2022 there was always some doubt as to how to go about defense planning in the baltic region um, despite finland and sweden being there but not being part of the alliance uh, now that debate is closed um it's also a big deal that they have joined precisely because sweden historically has long adopted a neutral status finland for its part has had a defense posture aimed at self-sufficiency and autonomy that all said um i would like to point readers to or listeners to another paper of mine that i've co-written with uh, Catherine Catherine elgin of the center for strategic and budgetary assessments in washington dc uh published in Texas National Security Review, whereby we argue about how Sweden and Finland are in fact unique cases as regards to alliance politics, precisely because they had already expanded their defense cooperation with NATO or a subset of NATO members since the end of the Cold War in a way that is so robust as to exceed even the defense cooperation that we see in some existing military alliances like China and North Korea when was the last time for example you've heard of China and North Korea conducting military exercises you haven't because they haven't and Sweden and Finland have in fact taken part in article 5 military exercises with NATO um, prior to 2022. so Sweden was officially neutral but in a way on our side so to speak Finland and Sweden have joined various security formats that involved several NATO members. They have participated in NATO missions like Afghanistan. They have bought more and more equipment from NATO countries. Finland prior to its decision to join NATO or even prior to Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine and announced uh, its uh, decision to purchase large numbers of F-35 aircraft from the United States. So, on a technical level, the change is not actually as significant as some might think. It is certainly significant, but maybe more for idealistic reasons than for substantive military and technical reasons. That being said, the Russo-Ukrainian war has fractured, ironically, the collective security treaty organization that Russia leads. Yes, Belarus has provided a staging ground for Russian attacks on Ukraine, whether from the air or on the ground but Belarus has tried its best to limit its actual military participation in the ground combat. Some naive observers would have thought that Belarus had no autonomy whatsoever. That was basically a vassal state uh, for Russia, and yet it has retained significant autonomy. Everyone else within the alliance has been very lukewarm. As I've said already, Kazakhstan has distanced itself from the revanchism of Russia. There does not seem to be any signs that russia and china are upgrading their security relationship to that of a military alliance there have been some books with footnotes indicating that there is some secret clauses that might be indicative of an alliance partnership however the paper trail is extremely thin and i would treat such assertions with caution it is true that xi jinping but Russell File himself, as my friend and colleague uh, Joseph Trigian has pointed out in his own work, but China still has towed a very careful line since February 2022. Yes, its propaganda is pro-Russian, but it has refrained from giving significant military aid, at least to the best of our knowledge, it has respected in general the sanctioning efforts led by the United States and its allies and partners. China is probably a little too nervous and about tightening itself Politically, or tying itself politically to a country whose military is being shredded and whose political leadership has shown a certain degree of recklessness, recklessness as well as uh, inability to keep ahead of events, as witnessed by the uh, recent events uh, involving Yevgeny uh, Prigozhin and the Wagner Group. So, I suppose to answer your question in in brief. The effect of the war has been to tighten the Western Alliance to fragment further uh, the CSTO, which was never really strong to begin with, notwithstanding its very limited intervention in Kazakhstan in early 2022, and has probably prevented a tightening of the security relationship between China and Russia, at least to the level of the military Alliance, uh, as I have defined the term earlier in this conversation,
0: that is a fantastic answer. <laughs> However, sadly, we only have time for one more question, and that is something that we ask everybody that comes on the podcast What is it to think globally for you? I think if you're going
1: to want to think globally, you should read other news sources beyond those located in your own country. I think. It, that also might require acquiring language skills. I know in the Anglo-Saxon world, there are many who study international relations not having language skills. And I think that's unfortunate. I think it's a self-limiting factor to to the extent that that happens. So if you wanna think globally, you cannot rely on paradigms, international relations theories and so forth. They may be useful for categorizing certain phenomena that we observe in international politics, but to really get the meat of international politics, you do have to immerse yourself in other societies, cultural milieus, and political contexts that are outside of your own natural point of origin or your own uh, residency. Uh, It does require you to get out of your comfort zone, and I think thinking globally requires some discomfort as such. I'm not saying it's discomfort that rises to the level of anything physically painful, but it might certainly um, mean that you have to be vulnerable to mispronouncing words, to slurring your speech in uh, a clumsy way of trying to get the pronunciation right, to fumble through a dictionary, to just make mistakes in general. I think those are all very important to do if you want to really truly arrive at a comprehensive understanding of the world. And by the way, you'll never really actually achieve that because the world's an extremely complicated place with innumerable moving parts and many interpretive differences about some of the key things that we hold dear. So some humility is also uh, necessary.
0: Alexander Lenoska, thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast. I could chat to you all day, but our time's up. Thank you ever so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure.
1: It was a real delight to have this conversation. Thank you so much again for inviting me and for uh, bringing me on board this podcast. I really appreciate it. Wow,
0: that was really interesting. And I just realized that wow sounded like Owen Wilson. Wow, <laughs> that's my really bad Owen Wilson impression. <laughs> Anyway, I thought that was really 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 interesting. I thought that was really 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 thought-provoking, especially those initial answers on how we conceptualize military alliances and his discourse surrounding written agreement as a really important part of that conceptualization. Not least his discussion of NATO. So thank you ever so much for listening to this week's podcast. We're going to get to the answer of that riddle soon enough. But before that, at Thinking Global, we are part of the international Relations, the world's leading open access website for students and scholars of international relations. If you haven't been to international Relations before, should go check it out at e-ir.info, there you'll be able to find just tons and tons of content on international relations. It really is the global hub of IR, if I may say so myself. <laughs> There's just loads of free books. Who doesn't love a free book? articles interviews features book reviews so so much to get your teeth stuck into you can click on the little link in the description box also please 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 click on that little subscribe or follow button that way you'll be able to get all of our content bing as it's uploaded this episode was brought to you by the e international relations podcast team that is ismail aden tusharik Decker, edward curry nigel huckle Abigail Glynn, Eduardo Pieroni, and Daniel McDade. Music by Material Music also. Okay, riddle time. This week's riddle was, in the realm where battles roar, tenets guide conflicts to explore. Rights defended, wrongs abhor, criteria set, temperamenta restore. What theory shapes conflict to be more? And the correct answer was, just war theory. Yes, the answer is just war theory. And the first person to get that in about 30 seconds was Ben Rocha on Twitter, X, at Ben Rocha, who is a PhD candidate at Queen's University in Belfast. They are focusing on work concerning bordering practices, Brexit and ontological security. Well done, Benbro. You did very, very good. (laughs) The next riddle for next week's episode will be going out on the 21st of August, 2023. Well done if you got this week's one right and keep your eyes peeled on the e-International Relations social media feed for next week's riddle. So I guess there's only one last thing left to say. Thank you very much. I've been Kieran O'Meara and together we've been Thinking Global. See you next week.